everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Sean Wilson. Sean is uh, currently uh, the organizing director at dream.org, and he was previously with the ACLU Smart Justice Campaign. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thank you for having me, David. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, So I want to start with kind of a background of how you got to where you are today. Absolutely. Um, Thank you. So my name is Sean Wilson. I was born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, um, to a 17-year-old straight-A student who at the time of her pregnancy didn't understand or knew what parenthood entailed. And so uh, my mother um, decided that she wanted to have an abortion and my grandmother was opposed to that. And so my grandmother um, took over parenting me and raised me for 17 years of my life. Um, At the age of 17, I was charged and convicted and sent to Wisconsin State Prison for a total of 17 years. 17 years, which I did um, in books, um, you know, being completely honest, you know, I spent the entire, my entire incarceration with my head buried in the book, um, exercising and, you know, preparing myself for my release. Um, I immediately knew that I shouldn't be in prison. I knew that this wasn't a place for me. And so I began to make preparations for my re-entry back into um, society. But prior to my incarceration, you know, I had a great um, childhood. My grandmother, you know, sent me to some of the best schools in the state of Wisconsin. Um, up until high school, I had scholarships, academic scholarships, as well as athletic scholarships um, awaiting me. However, as I like to say that my dream was deferred when I, you know, was um, sent to Wisconsin State Prison, um, where I served at total of 17 years and began to prepare myself for uh, my reentry into society. One of the things that I noticed while I was incarcerated was that um, many of the people who were there with me were similar, were of similar age. Um, they looked like me. And I just knew that that wasn't right. I knew something was off here. And so I began to um, study history and began to study, you know, how did we get here? and begin to develop an analysis to address the problem of mass incarceration and the harm that it continues to perpetuate on black and brown communities here in America. 
And so what did you learn after you got out about how society treats formerly incarcerated? Because one of the points that I'm always making is that, okay, you know, and, and there are people that are wrongly convicted. There are people that, you know, are there way too long. There are people that probably shouldn't have gone to prison in the first place. But at the end of the day, when, they, you know, 95% of the people get released and then we make it impossible for them to succeed. Absolutely. So what I um, realized when I first came home was that there were countless barriers for individuals like myself and others. However, um, in my in my case, I had a great deal of family support um, that allowed me to, you know, secure housing. I had family support that had, you know, employment lined up for me. I had family who had transportation lined up for me. And then not only that, prior to me even coming home, my sister and my grandmother were uh, was making arrangements and putting me on their health plans and things of that nature. So I didn't have to navigate those barriers upon my reentry. However, that's not the 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 the, the case for, you know, the 600,000 individuals who are coming home each year. They are faced with, you know, barriers to employment, barriers to housing, barriers to employment, um, barriers to public benefits. And so the way that formerly incarcerated individuals are treated upon their release, um, they're still treated like pariahs. They're not treated as though they've served their debt to society. They're not treated as though they're being welcomed back into um, the community as they should be. You know, you would think that um, these tax dollars that our taxpayers are paying um, for individuals to go to prison and take responsibility for their behavior, you would think that these individuals are returning home to their society after re um, receiving that rehabilitation. But even society doesn't believe that individuals are being rehabilitated in prison. And that's why it's very important that we educate society on what is happening within um, the correctional setting, that we help them understand that individuals aren't getting the help that they are in need of, that their trauma is being exacerbated, and that in most cases, individuals are coming out, coming out worse than they went in. And so here at dream.org, we're very intentional in educating not only folks who sign up for our campaigns, but even formerly incarcerated um, individuals who sign up to do work with us we understand that we have to educate them on what the system is and what the system is continuing to do and give them the tools and the resources that they need to advocate um, for a more humane justice system while creating opportunities for um, those individuals who are coming home from incarceration. So can we drill down a little bit into, you know, what specifically do people that are incarcerated need in order to get, you know, past this kind of cycle? And, you know, and, and that's that's probably not a fair question because it depends on the individual. You have people that uh, are suffering from mental illness. You have uh, a large percentage are suffering from various substance use disorders. But But what types of programs do there need to be in the carceral setting itself in order to help people, um, you know, get out and then and, and then find success? 
Absolutely. So I think the first thing that is needed is a setting that is conducive to growth, a setting that is conducive to healing. Um, there's been a lot of comparison to um, the European correctional system and how humane and conducive to growth that it is. In America, the criminal legal system or the carceral um, setting is, I mean, it's just the painting on a wall. You can look at the painting on a wall and it lacks stimulation. Um, you're, you're looking at Bob Wires when you go out and walk the uh, rec yard, walk out on the rec yard. Um, you're having to, you know, um, use the bathroom on a metal, a metal piece of equipment. <laughs> you know, you're laying on a concrete slab. So the first thing I think that is needed is a setting that is conducive to growth. Um, and if you have a setting that is conducive to growth, um, the visual, then you have to have programs that begins to address the issues that have sent most individuals or or the contributor that has sent individuals to prison in the first place. And so you have individuals who are in prison as a result of substance abuse. You have individuals who are in prison as a result of mental health issues. And so you need qualified um, um, individuals in position to properly diagnose these individuals and give them the treatment that they are in need of that will put them on the path to um, healing, to, that will put them on the path to overcome their addiction. That's what needs to happen in order for us to begin to reduce recidivism and return individuals back to society whole. So, you know, um, it, it's interesting. Um, I don't know if you followed this, but California has uh, instituted this pilot program at San Quentin Prison, which has uh, been notorious as, as the home of the, the death row. And they're now going to introduce the Scandinavian model of prison there. Um, and I was reading this account of, uh, I think it was in Norway, and, and they were visiting a, a prison there. And, and the prison cell is actually like a, a college dorm room. Um, so you got a bed and a desk and, you know, and everything. And they, they have like a shared kitchen and actual utensils where they can make their own food so they don't have to uh, eat the prison issued food. And, and one of the people um, that were touring said, well, have you ever had a, a, a situation where somebody took the, the cooking implement and stabbed somebody with it? And, and, and the uh, corrections officer there said, well, why would somebody do that? <laughs> um, and, and it just kind of illustrated exactly the difference in the mentality that, you know, and it's kind of this interesting thing that if you think about it, the people in prison, you know, aren't going around even on the outside generally, like, you know, walking down and stabbing each other uh, with forks and knives and stuff. It, it, it's only in the prison setting that that kind of stuff happens. And so it's kind of this expectation um, that gets met that, you know, if you just change that mindset, it makes a big difference. Yeah, I think, you know, one and, and 
And let me just say this, David. I think that Americans understanding of prison comes from Hollywood. And as we know, Hollywood, you know, embellishes stories. You know, it sensationalizes things um, to get viewers. And I spent 17 years in Wisconsin's prison, as I stated at the top of the hour. Um, I only seen, I don't even believe I've ever seen anyone get stabbed. And I was in one of Wisconsin's worst maximum security prisons. In fact, on the bus to Wisconsin's um, Green Bay Correctional Institution, the only thing that I heard was that I was on my way to gladiator school, which told me basically that I was going to have to fight. And so in prison, fights happen, happen often. Um, and also in prison, fights don't last no more than anywhere from two minutes to at the most five minutes. So there's not these long drawn out brawls that are happening that Hollywood portrays within the American prison system. Now, I don't say all that to not say that the prisons aren't violent because the prisons are indeed violent. Prison is a microcosm of society. Everything that is happening in society is happen happening in our prison system. However, the Scandinavian model that is being introduced in San Quentin is necessary. This is a model that needs to be replicated all throughout America because, again, it begins to tap into the humanity of the individuals who are within the com um, the conf uh, within confinement of the correctional system in this country. What Americans fail to realize um, is that anyone can land in prison. Anyone. It's so easy to find yourself in a five by seven cell. Martha Stewart never in a million years thought that she would wind up in prison, but she wound up in prison. So I think, you know, we have to do a better job as advocates, as um, um, advocacy organizations, as podcast hosts, um, as journalists, to really educate the American public on what is really happening in their name. And not only what is happening in their name, we also have to, um, we have to dispute, we have to like really tear down the, 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 um, the image of prison that is out there that has been given by Hollywood. And that feeds into why formerly incarcerated individuals aren't received with welcome, welcoming arms by society because we're so bent up or caught up in the fact that what we see on these Hollywood movies are in reality, are, are, you know, facts are actually, you know, these are the individuals who are coming home. They're coming home to steal, kill and rape us. That's not what's happening. Individuals who have served their time, they only want to come home and if they don't have a family already, they want to build a family. Um, if they don't own a house already, they want to they want to they want to be a part of the American dream. They want to be your neighbors. They want to be a good Samaritan. They want to do all of the things that the average American wants to do. And I think we have to do a better job in communicating that and showing that. A lot of folks look at me. I often get asked, "Are you an attorney? Are you an are you a politician?" And 
you know, I'm none of those things. But the way that I look gives people that impression. Folks are blown away when I say to them that I spent 17 years of my life in a correctional institution. Folks are blown away when they hear that story that I was sent to prison as a kid. And that's what we do in this country. We send our children to some of the worst places that we can think of. And prison is a worst, is, is a worst, the one of the worst places that you can send anybody. It's traumatic. So from your perspective, you know, what do we need to do differently? Um, we've talked about a few things, but you know, if you could set things the way you wanted them, how, how would you do it? I think one of the things that, and, and I had the opportunity to, to tour um, the, the Federal Bureau of Prisons um, last year. Um, I went into probably 10, 12 federal prisons and I had a conversation with the men there and I encouraged them or I shared with them um, how I spent the 17 years of my life in prison, how I was disciplined, how every morning I woke up, you know, I checked the news as if I was home. Um, I called home and asked questions about what was going on so that I was aware of what was happening so that I didn't fall asleep to the world that was continuing on around me, although I was in a confined setting. Um, I, again, buried myself in books. I engaged in, you know, constructive conversations um, where I was always seeking out, you know, the opportunity to learn from, you know, my fellow quote unquote inmate. Um, and so I think what we can do is the individuals who have come home and have reintegrated successfully and who have become entrepreneurs, who are working for these advocacy organizations, who have gone on to do some amazing, impactful things. I think we have to expose the current incarcerated population to these success stories. And exposing the population to these success stories gives them motivation. I can't tell you how many individuals over the last six and a half years that I've been out of prison. And four of those years, I've gone into um, state prisons as well as federal prisons and had conversations with men and women. And I would say over 50 have come home, have found me on social media and have said, hey man, you are the reason why I am now a truck driver. You are the reason why I, I went and purchased a home and now I am a homeowner. You're the reason why I got married. You're the reason why, you know, I'm repairing and restoring the relationship um, with my children because the way you shared your relationship with your children. So I know the impact of exposing, you know, success stories to the currently incarcerated population. I know the impact that that will have but it has to get buy-in from the, the, the administrators that runs and oversees these prisons. Like the system that they have in place right now isn't working. It is a system that literally allows individuals to just sit in the day room and watch television and play games all day. The programming is very lax. 
individuals don't have the opportunity to just, you know, sign up for a program that's going to address their substance abuse. They not they don't have the opportunity to sign up for a program that's going to address, you know, any mental health issues that they may have been diagnosed as having. That's not accessible in our prison system. There's often the narrative that we don't have funding. We don't have the staff. So if you're being told that we, you don't have the funding and the staff to address the needs of the men and women and the children who are coming into your keep, how are you serving the American taxpayer who has, who has been given the impression that these individuals are coming to you to be rehabilitated, to be reformed and returned whole? How do you make the argument that this system is effective? Yeah, it's a good point because I know in California, we spend nearly $100,000 a year to incarcerate one person. And only about three or 4% of that money goes for rehabilitation. Insane. In Wisconsin, we, we, spend, we spend over a billion dollars on our correctional system. We spend more on our correctional system than we do our entire university system. So we, we think that is more value in investing in a prison system that removes individuals from their families and their communities and place them hours away from their families and their communities, cutting off those relationships. We think that it's more value in doing that than investing in our university students, investing in these individuals who have, you know, made a bad, you know, decision, who have, you know, went a different direction that they shouldn't have gone. We feel that justice looks like placing them in a cell. So um, let, let's let's shift slightly. Um, talk a little bit about your current work with Dream.org. Absolutely. So here at Dream.org, our mission is, you know, closing prison doors and opening doors of opportunity. Um, we believe that it is important that we bring together individuals from, you know, different backgrounds, different experiences, different political ideologies. We believe in bringing everyone together in seeking common ground in addressing the issues that we're facing as a society. We're big on, you know, everyone deserves to be at the table because in order for us to really uh, um, tackle the issues that we're facing as a society, it has to be all of us, not some of us, but all of us. And so on the justice, I'm, I'm the organizing director here on our justice program. You know, we're working to build nationwide capacity um, we're looking to build capacity in all 50 states to pass transformational um, criminal justice reform legislation that's going to reduce the footprint of incarceration in these states. In this country, um, we are, well, as you know, David, we are 5% of the world's population. However, we lock up 25% of our people, you know. And so here, we believe that in investing in the leaders at the state and local level who are proximate 
to these issues, investing in them and giving them the tools that they need, that we can begin to pass transformational legislation at the state level, reducing the footprint of mass incarceration in those states, which will ultimately reduce the um, incarceration rate nationally from 2. Point million. You know, we would love to see it reduced by half. You know, I mean, that's a, a, a realistic number. You know, I would love to see it reduced by half. And so um, in my role, that's that's what I'm tasked with doing is building those relationships all across the country. Um, and then we have some federal priority uh, work that we're um, engaged in. We're working to pass a piece of legislation called the Equal Act. The Equal Act is a piece of legislation that gets rid of the disparity between crack and powder cocaine. Currently, it's 18 to 1. We're working to get it 1 to 1. We um, know that the impact of this legislation being passed um, will really um, repair and restore the harm that has been caused to many of the communities around this country um, that are black and brown. And so we're working to get that passed. We um, were able to get it um, passed um, out of the House of Representatives last session, but it died in the Senate. And so this session, we're working hard with our partners all across the country um, to get this passed. And you know, you, to your listening audience, I would definitely encourage them to call their senators um, and tell them that they are in support of the Equal Act and they want to see, um, you know, this bill passed so that families and communities can be restored. So, so that's obviously, you know, a big issue. And, um, you know, they, it used to be a hundred to one. Now it's 18 to one, which is a little bit better, but one of the big problems with even the previous legislation is it wasn't retroactive. So yep. you had all these people that are, that are, you know, incarcerated for life uh, for relatively minor drug offenses. Uh, and the only solution is commutation. Um, so, so that, you know, that, that just seems to be like, something that should be a no-brainer no for, you know, across the political aisle, right? Absolutely. Why are we having such a hard time getting even this simple piece of legislation through? I think it it, it boils down to, you know, um, fear. Fear is one of them. It, it boils down to um, politics, bureaucracy. You know, you have um, individuals in these, in these seats that has you know, their own agenda. And one of their agendas may be preventing, you know, legislation um, from passing that's going to, you know, reduce the footprint of mass incarceration. Unfortunately, um, these are the individuals that, you know, <laughs> you know, just being completely honest, these are the, these are the individuals who, who shouldn't be in those positions, in my opinion. Uh, but they're in those positions and, you know, we're working daily um, to better help them understand why their support is needed, uh, to help them understand that, you know, this doesn't just impact black and brown communities. Yes, it impacts black and brown communities disproportionately, um, but it also impacts, you know, other communities throughout this country. And, you know, you think it's an easy lift and it should be an easy lift. I mean, it's a, as you said, it's a no brainer, but we have so many 
you know, things that we're running up against that's preventing this legislation from being passed. Um, and that's why, you know, we need everyone um, involved and everyone at the table to, you know, discuss strategy on how we can move these people um, to the center. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm not naive either, but, you know, it just seems like there there's some legislation that that is going to be difficult to to pass and, and and should be difficult to pass because it involves huge changes to the system. This just feels like a basic, simple thing that uh, that for some reason we we haven't been able to get past. I mean, like I can understand it being difficult to like you know abolish the death penalty because that's a big issue and there are people that are really heavily dug in. I just can't imagine why people would be so dug in on this one. And yet it just seems like that bureaucracy is unmovable. Yeah, I think also, you know, I was asked a question, um, you know, what's the difference between the difference between crack cocaine and powder cocaine is baking soda. <laughs> That's the only difference. And so it shouldn't be that hard to pass a piece of piece of legislation that will equal out the synthesis of individuals who have been charged with each of these substances. And they're not the only difference is baking soda. Yeah, I would say the biggest difference is the perception that you know powder cocaine is used by white stockbrokers that yep. are living it up a little too hard, whereas crack is used by, you know, gun-toting people in the cities that have a darker complexion. So I, I just think there's too much embedded into this thing that even if people aren't saying it, it's encoded in that brain. Absolutely. And I'm and I'm glad that you said that, David. Um, and I completely agree. That's exactly what it is. You know, um, it's it's race. Race plays a, a critical um, it, it plays a, a critical factor in 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 why this legislation um won't be um uh, can't be passed or why it hasn't been passed yet. But I'm hoping that we can get over that hurdle. Um, and folks understand that it makes common sense. It is good for the country and it begins to repair and restore the harm that has come upon black and brown communities for the last 40, 50 years. So I want to go back to, to your experience because I'm really curious as to what you think would have made a difference when you were 17 to have kept you out of prison for 17 years. That's a good question. And I've been asked that question several times and I've attempted to answer it, you know, many different ways. Um, I would say maybe if I had my father in my life, um, you know, I grew up, you know, without my father, um, never met him, um, was raised by my grandmother and my grandfather. Um, yeah, man, I think, um, having my father in my life, having, um, more strong male role models in my life, I think that would have been a, a big deterrent 
I think the men that were in my life um, were not a good influence on me. Um, and ultimately, you know, better decision making. I mean, I knew that the things that I was doing was not, you know, how my grandmother raised me. It was, um, it went against everything she instilled in me. Um, and so I knew better, but peer pressure um, is something that, you know, parents all over America have to deal with when it comes to their children. Um, we want to be, you know, accepted by our peers more so than we want to, you know, make our mom and our dad proud. And although, you know, my grandmother, my mom, you know, my grandfather and other adults in my life, you know, have said to me, you know, the things that I was doing was wrong. It's not how I was raised. Um, that didn't resonate with me. What resonated with me was how my friends, you know, thought what what they thought of me, you know, how they accepted me. That's what mattered the most to me. Um, and unfortunately, um, being concerned about what my peers thought um, in my own poor decision making led to me being removed from my family and my community um, for 17 years of my life. However, um, I would say that, and it may sound, it may sound, it may sound weird to say that spending 17 years in prison, it may have been the best thing for me. Um, my grandmother often said that she thanks God that he chose prison instead of the graveyard. And so having an opportunity to sit down and reflect on my behavior and begin to make amends and begin to do what is necessary to repair and restore harm so that upon my release, I can be a value add in a productive member of my community and in, in, in within my family. Um, I understand why my grandmother said, you know, she is glad that God chose prison for me instead of the graveyard. Some people aren't as lucky as I have been um, or aren't as blessed as I have been. Um, and so I just took advantage of the time that I had to become a better human being so that I can come home and allow my story to be a deterrent. Um, I speak to youth often um, and I try to use my story as a deterrent for them um, to let them know that I went down that path for them, that they don't have to go down that path um, and that the things that they are engaging in um, is gonna lead them to one of two places, the graveyard, or the penitentiary. And if they don't want to go to either of those places, then they need to change the way that they are behaving. They need to change their crowd and they need to do what is necessary so that they can become the success that not only I know they can become, but even they themselves know that they can become. They just need access to opportunity and access to individuals who really care and value them. Yeah, so I think you mentioned um, a few things that are really important. Um, one thing I've 
done over the last 15 years or so is spend an inordinate amount of time in court. And I remember in particular this one case, which was pretty bad, uh, which involved five uh, kids, all of them 13 or 14 years old. Um, and it was a messed up prosecution. And, and, and fortunately, uh, they ended up not having to go to prison. But the, the thing that really stuck out to me was I was sitting in the courtroom and there were no other men uh, in the courtroom. It, it, the mothers were there, sisters were there, grandmothers were there, there were no men. And I, I made this observation to one of the attorneys and, and I said, yeah, and you're not gonna see any men here because uh, there are no men in the, these guys' lives. And you know that, that's just a recipe for nothing good happened. Yeah. Um, the other really interesting thing that you mentioned is that in some ways, um, the best thing that happened to you was that you spent that time in prison. Um, and I've had the chance to work with a lot of formerly incarcerated people. And, you know, the, they all tell me the same basic thing is that, you know, it, it you know, after, you know, first when they get in there, they're angry and they're maybe even getting into trouble in, in the prison. And then at some point that light comes on and they're like, you know what, I don't really want to live this way anymore. And then they, then they get serious and they start, you know, doing the education and the job training and the extra stuff that whatever they can, whatever they can do. And so, you know, as bad as I think the prison system actually is, in some ways it accidentally works. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm really a believer that a vast majority of the people in prison don't need to be in prison. That, that if we had other outlets that would allow you to kind of do the same thing, except not lock people in a cage, that we'd be doing this a lot more efficiently. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I think that, you know, hurt people hurt people. Um, we're all hurting. And if we don't get um, help to begin to heal from that hurt, we're going to just continue to perpetuate that hurt. And we have a system in this country that if you do wrong to someone, um, we're going to bring you in front of the court of law and we're going to hand down a sentence that places you in a closet for several years, for decades upon decades. We are under the impression that that is justice. But if you have a conversation with a victim who has been victimized, oftentimes, and this is something that Danielle Sered, um wrote about in her book. Um, I can't think of the name of it um, at the moment. Is it? I think it's Until We Reckon. Um, she wrote about it in the book where she said that most victims just want to tell their story. Most victims just want to know why me? Because as a society, we're often told and we grow up with um, the saying that bad things, good things, bad things doesn't happen to good people. And so when something bad happens to you, you begin to question, am I bad? Am I not good? Why did this happen to me? And so the victim 
in most cases just want to know why. So I think that as a society, we have to create a system that is more restorative, that is more um, 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 that is creating a space where a repairing of harm comes about where you're allowing the perpetrator to sit across the person that they've caused harm to and have a conversation as to why they perpetrated this act of violence upon them. And then in communicating that, the victim begins to hear what happened to this person that ultimately led to them causing this harm. It is a continual, a continual cycle. And so I think we have to move to a more restorative system where we're addressing the root cause of these issues. Right now, what is happening, David, I give you 10 years and you're gonna go away and you're gonna serve that time. Sean, you get to go home as the victim to deal with this trauma that has been perpetrated upon you. There's no system in place that helps me as a victim unpack and heal from what just happened to me. But the courts think that them giving you 10 years is justice for me, is healing for me. And that is not the case. What often happens is that victim goes home and they are suffering from this hurt and they begin to engage in substance abuse. They begin to, you know, pick up the bottle or pick up drugs or they or begin the victim to, to uh, offender pipeline. Absolutely. Victim to offender pipelines. Perfectly said, David. That's what happens. That's exactly what happens. And just to just to just to just go back to um, your statement about being in the courtroom and not seeing any men or any of the fathers. Um, I, I I grew up in a, a a zip code in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, called the five three two zero six zip code. Um, this is. This zip code has the highest incarceration rate of black men. And as I was growing up, David, um, I used to often wonder whatever happened to this guy, whatever happened to that guy, and whatever happened to this guy um, who often disappeared every summer. And there was only two, pl two places that these individuals were. They were either in the, um, in the graveyard or they were in prison. Now, I, I didn't hear about a funeral. I haven't seen their names or their faces on a t-shirt. And so my only conclusion was they were in prison. And that conclusion wasn't confirmed until I myself found myself with 17 years over my head on a bus to one of Wisconsin's prisons in the rural, the most rural part of the state where I ran into these guys who I saw when I was 10 years old, 11 years old. And I was always wondering where were they? Where are they? Where did they go? Come to find out they were languishing in Wisconsin prisons. And this is happening all over the country, all over the country. These young men, these young men that you mentioned, who were in court, their fathers, I'm sure, their uncles, the men in their life are some are in some prison somewhere in this country. And the cycle is continuing because they don't have that male presence 
that male presence that's going to deter their behavior and that is going to give them a a a a model that they can look up to that is not engaging in criminogenic behavior yep absolutely well sean uh our time is up i really enjoyed talking with you and learning about your amazing story um and i'm sure we're just scratching the surface uh so at some point i'll probably circle back to you and want to do this again at, at some point absolutely thank you david for the invitation i really appreciated the conversation i think these are the conversations that are needed all across this country and the more we have these conversations the more we are able to come up with some innovative solutions that will really begin to um, solve the problem of mass incarceration in this country um we have to understand that we're all six degrees separated from someone who is impacted by the criminal legal system and with that being the case we should be mindful on how we treat these individuals and ensure that we are working in our capacity um to remove the barriers that they will face upon their release we've been talking with sean wilson he currently works for the dream.org justice team he's formerly incarcerated spent 17 years of his life in a prison in wisconsin you've been listening to everyday injustice i'm your host david greenwald join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.